Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free daily email newsletter, our smartphone app, and of course, at the website at SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am coming to you today from Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Joining me from his home in Nashville, Tennessee, is Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SupChina.com. Greet the people, won't you, Jeremy? Hello, people. Coming to you alive, well, still alive, in my home in Tennessee. Very pleased to be with you. <laughs> anyway, jumping in here, uh, China, as we say at the beginning of each of our shows, is a nation that is reshaping the world. Today, we're going to look at how different geographies in the world are reckoning with China's rapid ascent from an impoverished and, and, and relatively isolated state, a country whose economy and influence were both hobbled by a rigid ideology. Uh, and, and it became, in the years since reform and opening uh, in the 1970s, uh, late 70s, the only major power in the world uh, that can meaningfully contest the dominance of the United States. I mean, America has enjoyed preeminence, at least since the end of the Second World War, and, and has you know, become the one monopolar power after the collapse of Soviet communism in the late 1980s and early 90s, I can think of few individuals who are better placed to talk about the big picture meaning of China's ascent and global reaction to it than Professor Kishore Mabubani. Uh, he joins us today to talk about the countries in China's own regional neighborhood, as well as the incumbent power, the U.S., uh, and how they have responded to China's rise, how they perhaps ought to be responding to it. Professor Mabubani spent many years as a senior diplomat in Singapore and is now dean and professor in the practice of public policy at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. He is the author of several books, including most recently, The ASEAN Miracle, A Catalyst for Peace. And he has a forthcoming book by Penguin UK called Has the West Lost It? That's a very provocative title. Professor Mabubani, Kishore, if we may... Welcome to Seneca. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Kishore, in deference to this broad range of issues that you've, you've thought about, um, I mean, you um, pardon us if, if there isn't any really clear focus to our questions to you, but we are really interested in, in, in getting your take on a broad range of very disparate topics related to China's rise and the world's response. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you start us off? I want to start by asking you about an idea that's found its way into many discussions about the broader relationship between China and the U.S., as you know, uh, Graham Allison published a book earlier this year that's generated considerable controversy, destined for war. Uh, it is, of course, about the so-called Thucydides trap. Do you think that Allison's telling up of rising versus incumbent power scenarios in history and his conclusion that the odds are for conflagration is a particularly useful idea? Well, I think, um, frankly, the most important relationship in the world uh, is the relationship within the world's number one power, which today is the United States of America, and the world's number one 
emerging power, which today is China. So anything that is done to try and promote a better understanding uh, of the relationship between America and China is, I think, a useful contribution. I think the most useful thing that Graham Allison has done uh, with his book, The Thucydides Trap, is to draw attention to the fact that there is at least a possibility uh, of a conflict uh, between America uh, and China. But at the same time, of course, uh, I completely disagree with his uh, pessimism. Uh, as you know, pessimism sells. <laughs> right. So if he had written an optimistic book on the relationship within United States and China, he wouldn't have sold one copy. <laughs> but because he wrote a book saying, hey, we are about to go to war with China, everybody buys his books. So that was a very, in that sense, uh, a good marketing move uh, on the part of Graham Allison, whom I know is very, very shrewd. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, I think his uh, conceptual structure is wrong because he sort of gives the impression that you are destined for war. Uh, between these two powers. Now, this may have been true uh, if this had happened in the 17th or 18th century when, when when war was what I call the default option. Right. But we now live in the 21st century. And, you know, uh, a Harvard professor, Steven Pinker, whom I quote a lot, has actually pointed out that wars have become a sunset industry and certainly wars between any war within two major nuclear powers has become an unthinkable option because both sides lose. Right. There's no question of one side winning in a nuclear war. It's a busy it's what you might call mutual harakiri. And most <laughs> rational people uh, avoid mutual harakiri. So that's why I think the idea uh, of a war between US and China uh, it's good to sell books, but it is not a good uh, way of understanding what is going to come between America and China. I very much agree with that assessment. Uh, I want to go back some years and, and visit a concept that was once quite closely associated not only with Minister Mentor Lee, but also with you. Uh, that is, of course, Asian values. And in many of the circles that I run in, that Jeremy runs in, the phrase has become something of a punchline. It's used ironically to dismiss anyone who makes claims in defense of authoritarianism, that ring of you know essentialism. Uh, so where are you now on the basic claim that, I mean, if they may attempt to summarize the argument, that countries of East Asia with political culture that's steeped in Confucianism exhibit certain qualities, you know, frugality, a propensity to save, a, a kind of conservatism, an acceptance of or even a preference for hierarchical or more authoritarian political systems, uh, and that these basic tendencies are appropriate to those countries and actually maybe even better for them. Also, while I myself do think that there is an East Asian value system that prioritizes hard work, saving money, educating your children, and pragmatism, these are values that I admire, uh, and would like to live up to in my own life. But it does also sometimes seem to me that Asian values are an excuse for human rights violations. Sort of like Asian values, so shut up about Liu Xiaobo and Ilam Toti being locked up just for writing and publishing stuff. Well, you know, uh, there are a couple of points I want to make on this subject. First, you're, you're absolutely right. I participated in the Asian values debate myself. 
And having been a participant, I can say with great conviction that this debate wasn't started by the Asians. <laughs> Uh-uh. This debate was started by the West, uh, and I can tell you precisely how it began. It began at the end of the Cold War, when the West, especially and Western intellectuals, were hugely triumphant, and they said, and this was captured, of course, in the famous essay by Francis Fukuyama, "The End of History," where he said, "Hey, we have now reached the end of history." And guess what? We won. We won. <laughs> the white people won. The West won, and all of you in the rest of the world, I'm sorry for you guys, but you all just got to become clones of Western liberal democracies. And that idea was incredibly arrogant and condescending uh, towards the rest of the world, but it was received with great joy and celebration in the West. And I think that was that was one of the biggest, as I as I explain in my uh, next book on has the West lost it, that essay caused a lot of brain damage to the West, because it made them very complacent, and made them believe that they had no reason to change or adapt. Only the rest of the world had to change and adapt. And of course, what's happened since then has been the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Because what's happened is that the 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 end the the rise of Western triumphalism coincided with another big change in history, uh, which is of course the return of Asia. And there's one important historical fact that everyone must remember in the 21st century, which is that from the year one to the year 1820, for 1800 after the last 2,000 years. The two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. Right, and it's only in the last two hundred years that China, that uh, Europe took off and North America took off. But if you view the past two hundred years of world history against the backdrop of the past two thousand years of world history, the past two hundred years of world history have been a major historical aberration. All aberrations come to a natural end, so it's perfectly natural to see the return of Asia. So, at precisely the time when Asia was waking up, after Deng Xiaoping launched his four modernizations programs, after Man Mohan Singh opened up the economy in 1991, that's when the West was completely triumphalist and went to sleep. That's right. As Asia was waking up, and of they didn't they didn't get it at all, and that's why it's very important for the West to understand the exact moment of history we are in, and understand why is it they fell asleep when Asia was waking up. Kishore, in your book, you write that the most important event in two thousand and one was not nine eleven; it was China's entry into the World Trade Organization. The entry of almost a billion workers into the global trading system would obviously result in a massive creative destruction and the loss of many jobs in the West. This, to cut a long story short, was one major reason why Trump and Brexit happened fifteen years later in twenty sixteen. This is is really fascinating. Could you unpack this idea? And is there something about the UK and the US that has made them more vulnerable to populism? Is there some kind of political and social failure going on in the English-speaking world,、uh, what some call the Anglosphere? Well, I think you know、um, clearly the the thing that was that has amazed me is how so few in the West 
thought about the logical consequences uh, of China's decision to join the World Trade Organization, uh, WTO. Because, I mean, capitalism is always about creative destruction. So if you're going to have one billion new workers joining the global capitalist system, obviously it's going to lead to a lot of creative destruction. See, but what happened at the same time, and this is also what I document, the elites in the United States and in Great Britain benefited a lot because globalization gathered pace, the people in the finance industry made a lot of money, the elites had a great time, but they didn't notice that the working classes were actually struggling through this period dealing with this new competition. And this disconnect between the elites and the masses in America and in Britain in some ways too has led to these political explosions of Brexit uh, and of the victory of Trump. And what I, what I find very puzzling uh, about the West is that the West has got the best universities, the best think tanks, the best newspapers, the best TV stations, and then they get the whole big story wrong, right. which is actually quite stunning. And I think one of the biggest strategic mistakes that many in the West have made, they haven't even sat down and done some basic calculations of what does it mean when 3 billion Asians, I mean, leave aside the 1.4 billion Asians in China, you have also another 1.3 billion Asians in India, another 600 million Asians in Southeast Asia. You add it all up, there's 3 billion Asians waking up and suddenly discovering that they can perform as well as anyone else in the world can. And so this is a whole new ball game. And clearly, the Western economies and Western workers have to change and adapt to this new competition. And I'm actually quite stunned that there is not a single major voice saying, hey, how, what kind of structural adjustments does the West need to make to adjust to this new world. And that's one of the key reasons why I produced this book, that I'm producing this book, Has the West Lost It, uh, in April next year, because I'm going to tell the West, as a friend of the West, hey, the times are changing, and you've got to change and adapt too. My sense is that they're already on to the next challenge. I mean, when you, I was at, at uh, Davos and at, in Dalian over the summer, and the same conversations constantly in the hallway about uh, the elite's, abdication of responsibility. They, they failed to recognize how disruptive bringing all these you know, these billion Chinese workers online in 2001 would, would be. Uh, they failed to adequately distribute the fruits of, of globalization. And now they're obsessed with avoiding the impact of, of AI and advanced robotics, that revolution. Uh, they're obsessed with, with dealing with that issue. Do you think that it's. I mean, and I, I, my sense is they almost feel like that game is over. The other, we've already sort of blown it when it comes to globalization. But you think that there's there's a, a chance to still restructure and to redress that those issues? Well, I think uh, yes. I think it's certainly it's possible. See, the West still is a very strong civilization with many powerful assets. The world's best universities some of the world's best industries, some of the best R&D capability, the West can succeed. But to succeed, the West has got to go back to the drawing boards and ask itself, how does it need to change? So, for example, unfortunately, 
you know, I, I, I can understand why many of my friends in, the, in America, for example, are angry about the election of Donald Trump and they are reacting viscerally to him. But Donald Trump is not the issue. The issue is why did the voters vote for him? And what are you doing to, to, to address the voters' anxiety about the future, about their jobs and so on and so forth? And it's amazing that no one is really addressing that issue in a fundamental way. So, uh, for example, I mean, one Donald Trump is right. One good way of jump-starting the American economy is to invest more in infrastructure. Something with a lot of bipartisan support. Yeah, and the the country that is the infrastructure superpower in the world today is China. Absolutely. China has spent more on infrastructure in the last two, three decades than any other country has, by far. So why a dream marriage is a marriage between U.S. and China to rebuild American infrastructure? This is a common sense idea, but what is puzzling about the American intellectual scene is that a common sense idea cannot be mentioned by anyone and no politician or no public intellectual has the courage to say, hey, why not think of an infrastructure partnership with China? (laughs) Yeah, that does hit uh, to the heart, I think, of a, a very real problem in America. So then, Kishore, what are we to make of of China and its its uh, notion of itself? It's that it's maybe the self proclaimed champion of economic globalization. I mean, we've made reference a dozen times now on this podcast to to Xi Jinping's speech at Davos in last January, and to the countless times that Xi or other Chinese leaders have signaled their defense of globalism that is you know under siege by sort of populist nationalisms. Uh, do you think that this is not taken seriously enough by the U.S. and by the thinking class in, in the West? Yeah, certainly. I was in Davos when uh, President Xi Jinping gave his speech. And actually, I must say, I was genuinely surprised. You know? mm-hmm. It's quite Pleasantly, amazing right. that <laughs> a president of China, I mean, which is still, as you know, run by the Communist Party of China, has become a voice of openness uh, in the global economy. I remember at some point he said about not closing your windows, you know. Right. And so, uh, and that's how much the world has changed. And unfortunately, the traditional Anglo-Saxon media, right, New York Times, uh, my friends in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Economist, reacted very cynically. But they didn't get it. It's actually very significant that China has come out and said, hey, globalization is still good and we should keep trying to strengthen the forces of globalization and not turn our backs on it. That was a fundamental shift uh, that happened. And, And I think it reflected to some extent some very careful calculations on the part of China that China now has the greatest vested interest in continuing globalization because China is the number one exporter in the world. As the number one exporter in the world, you've got to make sure that globalization remains open and it carries on. But And, and so this actually creates a tremendous opportunity for the West and China to work together 
to keep all these global multilateral institutions strong. But the distrust between the West and China prevents this from happening. And that's a tragedy. Absolutely. On a related topic, I mean, not long ago, I wrote an essay in which I criticized Western pundits and policymakers for this tendency, this very tendency you you, you, Hmm. uh, you identify, to really sneer, but in, in this case, particularly at China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, I brought up this idea of the Kindleberger trap. I don't know if you're familiar with Charlie Kindleberger, who was an economic historian at MIT, and he's generally credited as sort of the chief architect of the Marshall Plan. Hmm. And this idea was that the reason why uh, Europe and, and, and really the world experienced the horrors of the 1930s, everything from the rise of fascism to uh, the war and the Holocaust and the Great Depression, too, was that uh, the incumbent power was no longer able, the UK, to provide global public goods. And the United States, which is the rising power at the time, failed to rise to its responsibility and, and provide those public goods. Instead, it passed, I mean, as Joe Nye was telling me in, in, in a conversation about this, sort of bugger thy neighbor tariffs, you know, the, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs. And that this was really the, the thing, the, the trap, if we're going to fear, you know, any trap being sprung, it's this. But can't we see Belt and Road and these sort of global institutions, institutions that that are meant to supplement uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, can't we see those as provision of public goods? And and why is it met with such condescension and such disparagement or or sneering? Two two points, Uh one on global public goods and the second on uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Mm Mm-hmm. And on global public goods, you know, actually I did write a book called The Great Convergence Mm -hmm. uh, in which I spelt out that this is a time when all of humanity is now sailing on the same boat. 193 countries have become 193 cabins on the same boat. But the problem about a global boat is that we have captains and crews taking care of each cabin and no captain or crew taking care of the global boat as a whole. So that may be another version uh, of the Kindleberger trap that you that you spoke about. So this is a time when the demand for global governance is rising and once again the supply is diminishing because you can tell from Donald Trump's America first policies that he's backing away from providing any kinds of global uh, leadership of the kind that the United States used to provide in the past. So there is a fundamental problem here. And I think uh, I, uh, one of my biggest disappointments uh, with, with Western intellectuals today is that they don't seem to realize that they've got to find ways and means of building new bridges with China to get a consensus on how you maintain these global public goods. And let me just mention in passing but unfortunately, it's a key issue. Why is there distrust between the West and China? The fundamental reason why there's distrust today is because the West cannot accept a country that is run by the Communist Party. And that's at the nub of the distrust between the West and China. So when I came to Harvard and gave a lecture uh, two years ago, on the subject, what happens when China becomes number one. One delicate point I made is that stop seeing the CCP as the Chinese Communist Party. See the CCP as the Chinese Civilization Party (laughs) because the goal of the CCP is to revise Chinese civilization and not to export communism. So 
that's why I think that, that there's a big psychological block that the West needs to overcome before we can build a genuine intellectual bridge between the West and China to ensure that we get the global public goods that the world needs today. Kishore, I'm very curious to know what you see as the causes of what I would call an illiberal turn that China took in the period after 2008, assuming that you recognize such a turn and that you were dated to roughly that period. I've heard all sorts of theories as to why China during the period after September 11 and until 2008 was relatively liberal with civil society blossoming, new media outlets popping up like mushrooms after a spring rain, much more tolerant internet policies and so forth. Uh, and I've heard lots of theories as to why that progress stopped and was arguably reversed after 2008 when you've seen much tighter supervision of the internet uh, and media, academia, uh, and even uh, the speech of government officials. Kaiser certainly has a theory about that. Um, what would you make of it? Well, you know, uh, and I, I have discovered actually that when it comes to China's internal politics, there are no experts. <laughs> Very few people really know what is going on behind the scenes. But let me give you my reading of why I, I, I'm not so sure that I would call it an illiberal turn, but I would definitely call it a tightening of discipline within the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, going back to my theme of China trying to revive Chinese civilization Xi Jinping knows that the only instrument that he can use to keep China strong is the Chinese Communist Party. And he also felt that the Chinese Communist Party was being delegitimized by growing accounts of corruption, especially corruption among the elite. So in an effort to save the Chinese Communist Party, he cracked down viciously on, on corruption. And of course, I was quite stunned that he had the courage to take on not one tiger, but two tigers uh, at the same time, Bo Xilai and Cho Yong Kang, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly. Yes, that's correct. And so that's amazing, you know. It's quite stunning that he could do that. And, you know, the, the first decade of the 21st century was a paradoxical decade for China, because in terms of economic growth, it was amazing. China grew very fast in the first decade. But at the same time, it was also very clear that politically there was a sense of uh, uncertainty and, and certainly a sense of corruption and so on and so forth. So what President Xi Jinping, I think, is trying to do is to reintroduce discipline into China. And of course, there's a price to be paid for that, huh? I was a few weeks ago, I was in Peking University launching the Chinese edition of my book, The ASEAN Miracle. And I can tell you, you're right, the Chinese, many Chinese academics feel uncomfortable with the tightening of this discipline and they can feel that the boundaries are narrowing for discourse in China. All that is true. The question is, at the end of the day, will there be a reversal backwards Will the Chinese political system become like the Soviet political system? And my answer is no. And just to give you a simple uh, contrast, okay, when the Soviet Union was run by the Soviet Communist Party, 
they didn't allow a single private Soviet citizen to go on tourism overseas. Only officials travel overseas. Right. The same was true under Mao. But today, under China, 110 to 120 million Chinese leave China freely. And every year, 110 to 120 million Chinese return to China freely. 8% of the population. So that's amazing. That shows that the people don't feel that they are being uh, oppressed by a Soviet-style communist system. So the Chinese political system is is a complex one, and it doesn't fit easily into the black and white parameters that are used by the West to describe China. That's right. Hey, cynical listeners. Just wanted to tell you about this week's sponsor, Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts lets you renew your prescription and reorder your brand lenses from anywhere in just minutes through an online vision test. Uh, It's designed by doctors, and every test is reviewed by doctors, so they're literally bringing the doctor's office to your home. Figuratively bringing the doctor's office to your home. But, you know, literally now means figuratively, apparently. Anyway, the contact lens price is just absolutely unbeatable. The vision test is only 20 bucks, and shipping is free. Uh, best of all, Cynical listeners get $30 off their first Simple Contacts order with the promo code SUPCHINA. Try it for yourself and save 30 bucks on your lenses by going to simplecontacts.com slash SUPCHINA or just entering the code SUPCHINA, S-U-P-C-H-I-N-A, at checkout. Again, that's simplecontacts.com slash SUPCHINA or just enter the code Sup China at checkout. I used to bring a bunch of contacts back from China every time I'd go, but now with Simple Contacts, I can just save room in my suitcase for my wife's precious Taobao purchases, which, as we all know, are much, much more important. Back to the show. Kishore, in in a recent interview that you did with Nathan Gardell's of the World Post, which was published on HuffPost, uh, you argue pretty convincingly about the inability of Western and particularly American leaders to tell the truth about the world, that it is becoming a multipolar world, a multi-civilizational world, as you put it, uh, and that it is not going to be one that is dominated by the West. And you suggest that in order for Westerners to reckon with the multipolarity of the world, they need first to really come to terms with the multiculturalism of their own countries. Now, uh, countries like the, the, the U.S. and, of course, the U.K., they are multicultural societies, and they have had their, their fair share of difficulties. You come from Singapore, which, of course, has a, a very long and largely successful history as a multicultural society. But let's look at China. Uh, Does China, too, have to be multicultural in order to adapt to a multi-civilizational world? I mean, because China, at least by my lights, is a pretty far cry from being successfully multicultural. I mean, on the mainland, uh, not only is it culturally, militarily, kind of politically dominated by Han Chinese, it's also, you know, uh, pretty averse to cultural and political pluralism. It's mm. not a pluralist society. Mm. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that I, I would I would separate your questions into two baskets. I think one basket of questions is about how we deal with a multi-civilizational world. And the second basket is how do we deal with the multicultural environment within our societies. And these are two distinct challenges. And to deal with the multi-civilizational world, of course, and this is actually, I discovered the problem uh, when I was asked to chair a forum in Davos four or five years ago on the future of American power. And I had a very distinguished panel, you know, Senator Bob Cocker, Chambliss, a New York congresswoman, and Mike Froman. My first question was, what do you see as future American power? Or they said, we'll be number one, we'll be number one, we'll be number one. <laughs> then when I said to them, hey, 
I see some statistics indicating you might become number two. I was stunned. I discovered that no American politician can have any words coming out of their mouth saying, hey, America, when America becomes number two, if America becomes number two, no American politician can speak about it. And that really frightened me because the, I can take a bet with any of you that in, in nominal terms, America will become the number two economy in the world. So America has got to shift its, its, its entire perspectives and learn to live in a world where there are powers greater than America in the world and therefore handle a, a multi-civilizational, multicultural world. But no one, no leader in America can say, hey, a different world is coming. That's right. problem number one. Well, problem number two, of course, is that within many of our societies also, as a result of globalization, we are becoming more and more multicultural. And here, I must say, I pay a lot of tribute to the United States of America. Of course, the United States, frankly, has attracted more uh, skilled immigrants than any other country has. I think if you, no other country in the world can absorb as many foreigners as the United States uh, has done so, and frankly has accepted Asian Americans so readily. I'm actually very impressed by how America has done this. And you're absolutely right. It's much harder for the Asian societies to do so. The hardest, the, for the, the society that have the hardest time adjusting the multiculturalism is Japan. Right. But I think China will also have difficulties. Is but China doesn't have to worry about that situation now because with the population of 1.4 billion, even with falling birth rates, China has got enough people uh, to keep it going for a while. That same article, at least the way the headline was written, was quite provocative. It talked not just about the inability of the US to wrap its head around multipolarity, but really to accept its inevitable eclipse as number one. Um, have you got a lot, a lot of responses to that, as I imagine you would have? And I would imagine it did not land gently on the ears of many Americans. Can you talk about this and the responses to it? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I want to emphasize, uh, because I'm often seen as a critic of the West and a critic of America, I'm actually the best friend that the West has in the world today because I'm actually telling the West and I'm telling America that the world is going to change dramatically in the next 20, 30 years, you know. It's a very different world that is coming. And I'm actually quite surprised that Western intellectuals are behaving like ostriches, putting their heads in the sand and wishing that the world would not change fundamentally. But the world is going to change fundamentally. America is going to become number two. And just to give you a simple example, okay, you take the International Monetary Fund, which is the world's uh, most important financial institution. It is written in its constitution that the headquarters of the IMF must always be in the capital of the biggest economy in the world. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, doesn't matter when, whenever it ever happens, in nominal terms, China's going to have the world's largest uh, economy. And you know what? You've got to move the headquarters of the IMF. Now, have you started thinking about that? What's going to happen? Another problem, which is even bigger, and this is going to become, this is going to be the mother of all problems to remember <laughs> Saddam Hussein. Traditionally, the world's reserve currency 
has always been the reserve currency of the number one power in the world. Of course, it takes some time to shift. Of course, you know, when the power shifted from the British to the Americans, it took some time before we switched from the pound to the dollar, but it happened. It always happens that the global reserve currency will be the reserve currency, the number one power in the world. So it's inevitable that if China becomes the number one economic power in the world, and if P- in PPP terms, China's GNP may become twice the size of the United States, how can you have a world where the number one economic power is China and the global reserve currency is provided by America? Now, this is a big problem. I don't know what the solution is, but hey, let's start thinking about these changes and adjustments that we have to make. And trust me, no major American figure dares to come out and say, hey, let's start preparing for a world in which we become number two. And if you don't start preparing for it, when it happens, the shock will be much greater and the political consequences will mean that another figure like Trump or even a figure worse than Trump might emerge. So I'm telling my American friends, wake up, deal with this new world. Speaking of Donald Trump, uh, when I hear him talk about his idea of America in the world, uh, I detect two threads just in this notion of America first. I mean, there's this obvious isolationist strain, this tendency to want to pull back from commitments, from alliances, from, from entanglements, from obligations globally, which you could read almost as a kind of acquiescence to the end of American hegemony, American primacy. But then there's also this other strain, which is so strident and jingoistic, and which mm. seems to double down on the notion of perpetual American hegemony uh, of mm. primacy. Where yeah. does this leave us? Well, I think um, I. I mean, I. 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 I, I would say as politely as possible. <laughs> no, <laughs> no need. <laughs> that I think I would be fair to say that Donald Trump doesn't have a coherent worldview. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't think he's ever tried to sit down and uh, put together, uh, you know, the, the logic of one position with the logic of the other uh, position. So, but uh, I, I do think that it's a mistake to focus on Donald Trump. It's more important to focus on the American establishment, to look at, to talk to the people who run, let's say, the Council on Foreign Affairs in New York, the establishment. Mm-hmm. Why are they failing? to understand that a new world is coming? Why are they failing to talk of America becoming uh, number two? Why are they failing to say, hey, we've got to strengthen the institutions uh, of global governance and we have to give a bigger say to the Asian countries? That That's actually much more shocking because these people are supposed to be the liberal voices, the open-minded voices, the ones whose minds are open to the rest of the world. But it is their inability to be courageous and to and to tell the hard truths to the American population that I find to be more worrying. So I don't. I think it's a mistake to focus uh, on Donald Trump. Focus on the core of the American establishment and ask why are you failing to educate the American people that a new world is coming. And why, why do you think the fail? I mean, the failure is simply hubris? Is it simply, uh, what, why are they behaving like ostriches? What, do you think that it's just a, a lack of moral courage or realism or just what is, what's at the root of it? I, 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 think, I think you put your finger on a very serious issue, you know. And here, you see, this is, this is the hardest thing that 
you know, the Western mind believes that it has an there is an open liberal mind and it accepts universal truths. But it also then quickly jumps to saying that all universal truths are Western universal truths. So the idea of accepting the fact that Western ideas need not necessarily be universal but actually be applicable to one culture, they're great ideas, wonderful ideas. But the rest of the world is are not going to become carbon clones of Western ideas, Western concepts. It's a different world that is coming. I've so the Western said, yeah. mind cannot accept diversity of ideas, diversity of societies, diversity of opinions, and that's the core of the problem. I've often said that there are distinct forms of exceptionalism in China and the United States. The American exceptionalism is this belief that our values, our institutions are universally applicable for all mm. peoples in all times. And the Chinese, which is almost equally arrogant, is that our values, our beliefs, our institutions are applicable only to China and <laughs> that you can't really understand them. And it's, it's equally arrogant. Mm. Kishore, you've said that there are still many ways in which the US and China can meaningfully cooperate and still lots of complementarity in the economies. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, I mean, I, I, I do think that, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, I think what we want to see is a world in which basically humanity is better off, right? We want to see that, we want to see a world where global poverty is eradicated, where major diseases are eliminated, where every human being has access to a toilet, where every human being has access to electricity. And you know what? All these things, this, this sort of world which was considered utopia is now no longer utopia. Right. It's going to happen within 20 to 30 years as I document in my next book, Has the West Lost It? So the, the point is that both the Americans and Chinese leaders must think of a world in which everybody is better off. And if they can both collaborate and work together and establish all kinds of new rules, we can take care of a lot of problems. Like, for example, take climate change, for example, right? What, you know, what's amazing about the climate change issue is that, you know, until, until as you know, the Copenhagen Conference, China and India actually took the correct position, which is that, hey, climate change was caused by the Western Industrial Revolution. Why are you making China and India pay the price for climate change? But then the Chinese and Indians woke up and realized that, hey, climate change is going to damage them too. So China and India switched and stopped from being the problems on climate change and agreed to be part of the solution. Now, America should have welcomed the fact that China and India agreed to be part of the solution. And amazingly enough, America went in the opposite direction, <laughs> which is quite <laughs> stunning, you know. It's actually quite stunning that the Chinese and Indians are now prepared to make sacrifices to prevent climate change, and Americans under Donald Trump refuse to do so. So that is an illustration of how if you try to reach out to the rest of the world, 
and propose reasonable solutions where everyone makes sacrifices together, you can actually, amazingly enough, we can today solve most of the major global problems in the world and frankly fix the global economy in such a way that there are more jobs for Americans and more jobs for Chinese too. It can be done. But it's a question of sitting down and working together and getting rid of the old kind of zero-sum language uh, of the past. And of course, one critical part of this, by the way, and I have to emphasize this, is that the West has got to treat the rest with greater respect. And don't expect them to come and kowtow to the West, but say, hey, let's work together as equals, and it can be done. A gigantic obstacle. Uh, let's talk about ASEAN, though, uh, which recently, of course, celebrated its 50th anniversary and is the subject of your latest book, as well as the topic of the forum, which you keynoted this morning here at Harvard. ASEAN is, of course, made up of 10 states and two observers. Uh, those 10 states are not all of one mind when it comes to how to deal with China. You have states like Cambodia, which, of course, does not border on China, uh, whose authoritarian government is more than happy to keep you know, reaping the benefits of Beijing's largesse and doing its bidding in turn. Uh, you have others like Vietnam with very long-standing uh, uh, you know, historical rivalries, territorial disputes, deep animosities and suspicions. Uh, does the very different posture which is struck by uh, various ASEAN members, does it undermine the organization's ability to act as an effective counterweight to China? Well, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the miracle of ASEAN is that every day it hangs together, it's a miracle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because this was an That's organization that should have self-destructed a long time ago because it has really brought together the most diverse corner of planet Earth, you know. Right. Out of 600 million people in Southeast Asia, you have 250 million Muslims, 110 million Christians, 150 million Buddhists, Hinayana Buddhists, Mahayana Buddhists, Taoists, Confucianists, uh, Hindus and Communists in Southeast Asia. So, this it's amazing that ASEAN is able to hold together every day. So, the rise of China is going to create tremendous challenges for ASEAN. And certainly, the biggest threat that ASEAN faces today is U.S.-China rivalry, because the danger is that China may use ASEAN against the U.S., and the U.S. may use ASEAN against China. So, one reason why I wrote the book now, The ASEAN Miracle, with my co-author Jeffrey Sung, is to send a message to Beijing and Washington, D.C., please treat ASEAN as a delicate Ming vase. Don't break it. <laughs> so, so the ASEAN will, will go through a very challenging time in the next 10 to 20 years. But at the same time, I'm actually reasonably confident that ASEAN will stay together because ASEAN is hugely imperfect. It doesn't behave like a rational, logical organization like the European Union. In fact, I always say it moves forward like a crab, takes two steps forward, one step backward, one step sidewards. You watch ASEAN in slow motion, it seems to be going around in circles. By the end of the decade, it's already moved ahead quite significantly. Absolutely. So it will be a challenging environment for ASEAN, but there's a certain degree of uh, ingenuity within the ASEAN family that enables it to survive these kinds of challenges. Kishore, I'm from South Africa. I have family in New Zealand, a lot of friends in Australia uh, and other small countries. One of the things in common with these countries is that like Singapore, they are small but uh, prosperous. I think one of the reasons that I like your thinking on geopolitics so much is that you have the clarity of thought that comes from being a small country 
that may be prosperous, but has to deal with the very hard realities that big countries can and do jerk you around. The United States and China and maybe Russia too, I believe, are the countries that jerk small countries around right now. So on this topic, um, in July 2010 at the ASEAN Regional Forum in Hanoi, Yang Jiechi told the delegates, who are of course almost from small Southeast Asian countries, that China is a big country and other countries are small countries, and that's just a fact. This is of course a fact, but how do stalemates like this seem to Southeast Asians? This is of, of course a fact, but how do statements like this seem to Southeast Asians? In Singapore and its neighbors, how prevalent is the idea that it's common in the West. Let me take that again. This is of course a fact, but how do statements like this seem to Southeast Asians themselves? In Singapore and in neighboring countries, how prevalent is the idea, which is common in the West, that China has become a swaggering bully in its neighborhood? Yeah, I think I'm glad you referred to the 2010 uh, meeting because as you know, what happened, the reason why Yang Jiechi got very angry at that meeting is because Hillary Clinton ambushed him with some remarks on the South China Sea, and he 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 felt very upset that the to have been ambushed by Hillary Clinton. So I think that that's a context in which he made those comments. I think in the case, I always find that in dealing with China, uh, it's it's equally important to pay attention to their deeds as much to to their words. And actually, you know, in terms of what China has actually done more for Southeast Asia, Southeast Asian growth than any other country has. You know, for example, uh, uh, ASEAN countries had a much longer dialogue partnership with the Western powers like America, uh, European Union, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea. But guess what? None of them proposed a free trade agreement to the ASEAN countries. To the, everyone's shock, it was China that did so uh, first time in 1998-1999 and then concluded the ASEAN-China free trade area in a record time. The result of that is that total trade between ASEAN and China, which was $8 billion in 1991, grew and became $400 billion last year. And Xi Jinping now says, let's take it to $1 trillion. Now, if you have $1 trillion of trade between China and ASEAN, that's going to mean a tremendous amount of growth and prosperity. Right. And that's going to lift the Southeast Asian economies significantly. So... The deeds that you see between ASEAN and China, I think, are much more important than the words that I express uh, from time to time. Because at the end of the day, when the Chinese look around the world, they have challenges with all their neighbors. They have challenges with uh, Japan. They have challenges in the Korean Peninsula. They have challenges with Russia. They have challenges with India. And the most peaceful neighbor they have is ASEAN. So at the end of the day, I think they will learn to live and work with ASEAN because it's in their interest to do so. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Kishore Mabubani's latest book is called The ASEAN Miracle, A Catalyst for Peace. And we recommend that you procure yourself a copy. Kishore, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, we are very honored that you could share your insights with us and, and with our listeners. Uh, before we go, let's uh, offer our listeners some recommendations, shall we? Uh, but first, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter. Comes to you daily in your inbox. Download our app. Visit our website and follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. On Twitter, we are 
at SubChina News, and on Facebook, we are facebook.com slash SubChina News. And if you enjoy the Cynical Podcast, please leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store. This really helps, and it means a lot to us. So on recommendations, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? I'd like to recommend a little Beijing uh, field guide to the the birds, wild birds of Beijing called Beijing uh, Yanyao or Tujian, little volume published by Beijing Chubanshua. And if you live in Beijing or go to Beijing and like watching birds, this is a great little volume in Chinese only, unfortunately. Okay, sure. What do you have for us? Well, I'm going to make a very surprising recommendation because I know most of your listeners focus a lot on China. Mm-hmm. And even though I come from Singapore, I'm going to recommend the country of Indonesia. Great. It's one of the most underrated and underappreciated countries in the world. Uh, It went through a near-death experience in the height of the Asian financial crisis. People thought that Indonesia would break up. Instead, Indonesia has emerged as the most successful democracy in the entire Islamic world and has become a beacon for the Islamic world. So there's something unique about the Indonesian culture and society that the rest of the world should get to know better. And for a start, I say, whenever I go out in the evenings, what I do is I wear an Indonesian batik shirt. I recommend that people wear Indonesian batik shirts when they go out for dinners in the evening. <laughs> a great recommendation. Pick up smoking kratek. So, yeah. <laughs> it's an it's a it's an excellent it's an excellent. I've been I haven't been there for a long time, but it's it's a fascinating, mm. incredibly diverse. Uh, and and, and social media is exploding in Indonesia. Yes, yes it's got absolutely. the third largest number of Facebook users in the world. Anyway, uh, I want to share something uh, that Chris Buckley of the New York Times posted on Twitter earlier. Uh, he tweeted an excerpt from uh, Han Feiz, the, the warring states political philosopher who's associated with the doctrine of legalism. Uh, and he said that Han Feiz is explaining how the next Politburo Standing Committee has been chosen. Of course, it's very facetious, but the quote is, is worth reading in its entirety. I'll do it quickly. Under cover of darkness, observe the defects of others. See, but do not appear to see. Listen, but do not appear to listen. Know, but do not let it be known that you know. When you perceive the trend of a man's words, do not change them, do not correct them, but examine them and compare them with results. Assign one man to each office, and do not let men talk to each other, and then all will do their utmost. Hide your tracks, conceal your sources, so that your subordinates cannot trace the springs of your action. Discard wisdom, forswear ability, so that your subordinates cannot guess what you are about. Stick to your objectives and examine the results and to see that they match. Take hold of the handles of government carefully and grip them tightly. Destroy all hope. Smash all intention of wrestling them from you. Allow no man to covet them. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> and Kishore, a, thank you again uh, t- t- taking the, the time to, uh, to, to come and join us. And uh, we look forward to following your work and speaking with you again before too long. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. Jeremy, it's great great to talk to you as always. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.